following is a sermon preached at Grace Church of Orange, California. Join us now as we go verse by verse through God's inspired, inerrant, infallible Word. Today in Romans chapter 11 verses 1 through 6, we're going to see that the present remnant of believing Jews reminds us that God keeps His promises. The existence of, of that remnant of believing Jews signifies that, that God is not going to forget what he has said he will do. Now when you think about a remnant, often it's either telling you that there is nothing left or, or that there is more to come. So just in everyday life, if you think about what a remnant is, I remember when I was a kid, my mom would take me and my sisters to a place I hated to go, the fabric store. You know, it was torture for a kid, right? And I remember she would often buy remnants of, of material to make clothes for us. And, of course, the remnants were the last pieces. Uh, they were a good deal. So you know where I get my idea of getting a good deal. I remember one time we were looking for carpet for one of our places we lived, and uh, we found a remnant of carpet that was a better deal, and so we got that. But often a remnant means there is more to come. Now, you think about this. Think about getting a little bit of something, okay? Think about like an hors d'oeuvre or, or appetizers before a banquet, right? There's more to come. Here's a little bit, but there's more to come. Or you even think of, um, I think of Braveheart, okay? I love that movie, Braveheart. And here's Scotland's hero, right? William Wallace. And he is, he's this um, rebel who raises this homegrown army and challenges the tyrannical British crown at the time and... Uh, sacrifices everything he loved for freedom, right? But they had this hope of freedom, and, and in that movie, there, it often seemed hopeless. But then they would get a, a remnant of fabric, some tartan scrap of cloth from a distant clan, and, and that was promised, reminding them that that clan was going to come and stand with them and hopefully fight with them. It gave them some sort of hope. It was like, okay, uh, there's a symbol or a sign of better things to come. Now, in, in the largest possible way, in, in, the, in the much greatest way, what we're looking at today in Romans 11, this idea of the present remnant of believing Jews, that present remnant tells us there is more to come. It's not all there is. It's not all that's left, but there is more to come, and it is proof that God keeps his promises. It is proof that God's word never fails. Uh, There is a future hope, And, and when the question comes, has God rejected his people, the answer is no, and here's why. No, and here's proof. So this is what we're going to see today, this present remnant of believing Jews reminding us that God keeps his promises. So let's open up our Bibles. Let's open up the Word of God, and we're going to read Romans 11, 1 through 6, and if you're able, please stand with me as we read, as I read God's inspired, inerrant, infallible Word, which I will remind you is authoritative and binding in our hearts and our lives and our homes and upon us as a church. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. What is God's reply to him? 
I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for your presence with us. We thank you for your promises that are magnificent. Thank you, Lord, for the reminder that you keep your word. I pray, Lord, that your word would have its effect upon our hearts today, would be yielded to you, and that we would live for your glory and for your purposes. We pray in Christ's name, amen. So this present remnant of believing Jews reminds us that God keeps his promises. So waiting for us on the doorstep of Romans 11, we find the question, has God rejected his people? Why the question? You just need to go one verse prior, Romans 10.21. As for Israel, he says, all day long I have stretched out my hand to a disobedient and contrary people obstinate people, people that didn't just not believe, but they actually spoke actively against Christ. So they rejected the gospel, and they spoke against Christ. And so this question, well, so does that mean God tossed his people away? I mean, they rejected him, so is he rejecting them? By the way, the question in the Greek expects a negative answer. When Paul is writing this down, he knows the answer. The answer is no, God did not permanently reject his people, though they repeatedly rejected him. You see this through the whole Old Testament, and you see it in Isaiah chapter 30, where it's very clear. It says, you have rejected his word. You're going to be rejected. Hosea chapter 9, my God will cast them away because they have not listened to him, and they will be wanderers among the nations. So it's a good question to ask here in verse 1. Has God rejected his people? They've rejected him. So the answer, by no means, a solid, emphatic no. God's grace and mercy and love is still in operation towards his people. Let's remind ourselves what Romans has been going all along. Romans, from the get-go, is all zeroed in on the gospel. And we have those bookends in chapter 1, verse 5, and chapter 16, verse 26, that it's to bring about the obedience of the faith among the nations. Jew and Gentile alike, that people would hear the gospel of the grace of God in Christ, knowing that Jesus died for their sins in their place. He was buried. He rose from the dead on the third day. He is coming back. They need to believe in Jesus and be saved. And Romans is very, very focused on that. To the Jew first and also to the Gentile. Romans showed very clearly from the get-go that all people are dead in sin, that they are Uh, sentenced really in their sin and separated from God and they are under condemnation because of their sin. But then Romans shows us God's unilateral initiative in sending Jesus Christ to be the substitute for lost sinners on the cross, dying in their place, and that anyone who believes in Christ, God now credits his righteousness to them and they are assured of that. They, They are assured by God that Because they believe in Christ, they now have peace with God. They are no longer condemned for their sins. They have been adopted by God. They are always kept by God, and God is always with his people. There's an assurance of salvation. There is an assurance of the indwelling spirit of God with every believer. 
you get to chapter 11, and, and you're basically having to address the elephant in the room. What about the Jews? They're all rejecting Christ for the most part. What about the Jews? The majority are rejecting Christ. They're speaking against him. They had the God-given privileges that pointed to Christ, and they reject the gospel, and they try to manufacture their own works righteousness. So Romans 11 is a very important chapter as it relates to the Jews. Now, every chapter in the Bible is an important chapter. But if you want to know about God's plan for Israel, you've got to go to Romans chapter 11. God has not canceled his promises. That's what this chapter is telling us. God will keep his covenant promises to his chosen people. That's what this chapter is telling us. And and think about what kept promises are. When someone keeps a promise to you, that gives you assurance. That that comforts you. That encourages your heart. That, That actually makes you grateful, right? So God keeping his promises, that's confidence building for a believer, that's, that's gratitude-inspiring because God's answered promises are gracious gifts from him. Now, I want to give you actually the outline for chapter 11 before we dive into chapter 11. We're going to see this over, over a number of weeks. But I want to show you there's three parts to chapter 11. So the first part is chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. And that is this, it's telling us this. There is a present remnant chosen by God's grace. A present remnant. Now, in verses 11 through 32, the second section tells us there will be a future restoration of God's people by his grace. A future restoration. So you have a present remnant, first 10 verses, then verses 11 through 32, a future restoration. And at the end of the chapter, verses 33 to 36, there are eternal riches of God's grace to all who believe, to Jew and Gentile alike. So the eternal riches, so a present remnant, future restoration, and eternal riches of God's grace. Now when you're looking at Romans 11, it prompts questions. It, just, it really just prompts us to ask questions. And really, if you're a Gentile Christian, if you're not a Jew, these are things we don't often think about. And to our shame. A question like this, how do I think about and view Jewish people? How, are, how am I to interact with Jewish people? What should be my posture to them? What if they're a Christian Jew? What if they're a non-Christian Jew? What if there's someone that I think, there's no way that they could get saved. They're just so unlikely. Now, you've all known people that are Jews that are not believers in Christ, but some of you have helped lead Jewish people to Christ. That's a huge encouragement. Uh, by the way, let me just ask a question, because I don't know. Is there anyone here who's a Christian and also Jewish? Just raise your hand. Anyone who's a Christian and Jewish? Praise God. You know what? That that is proof that God keeps his promises. Keeps his promises to his people. So every person you meet who's Jewish and a believer is proof positive that God keeps every promise. There are none that are fallen by the wayside. We lose track, right, of our own promises that we make. God, God makes every one of his promises come true. You can't avoid the question about God's promises to Israel. You can't avoid it. There are so many Jews who have rejected Christ in the past and are presently rejecting Christ. The question is very valid, 
Like, why did the Jews reject justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone? Because you go through the entire Bible, and if you get saved, there's any, if you, if you, whoever you see in heaven, if you're going to heaven, you see, anyone you see in heaven gets saved the same way. By grace alone, through faith alone, in the promised Messiah alone. So if you're before the Messiah, you were trusting in the coming Messiah, like Abraham was doing. If it's after the Messiah, you're trusting in Jesus Christ, the one who's clearly proclaimed by the apostles and, and, and many, many others, including us now, we're proclaiming this, that Jesus Christ is the promised Messiah. He's the only way to be saved. He is what the Old Testament was pointing to. He is what the New Testament clearly presents. Now, chapters 9 and 10, we're discussing this already, right? God's word hasn't failed. At the beginning of chapter 9, it's like, did God's word fail with the Jews? Is that, is that the problem? And the absolute answer is there is no way God's word will ever fail. And, and Paul starts chapter 9 and chapter 10 with this heartfelt confession of how crushed he is inwardly that his fellow kinsmen have rejected Christ. God didn't break his word. You see the, in chapter 9 the tragedy of religious unbelievers. You see, though, in chapter 9, the sovereign mercy of God that saves those he chooses. And that God never breaks his word. He promised to save those he chose. And then in chapter 10, human responsibility for rejecting Christ. If you get saved, you say, Jesus saved me. If you're not saved, you say, I rejected Christ. So the question that comes in, are, are, are the promises canceled for Christ rejectors? Or are they nullified? Again, so many rejected Christ. They've been set aside from blessing. It's, it's their fault. But here's what Romans 11 tells us. It's not necessarily the end of the story for them. They're still alive and they're still breathing. It's not necessarily the end of the story for them. God has not canceled his promises. Uh, many reject. Many continue to reject Christ. Uh, they want righteousness by works. They reject righteousness uh, by faith, they stumbled over Christ, who the law pointed to. And here's what's happening in, in chapter 11. Three things are happening. Number one, excuse me, in, in these first six verses of chapter 11. Number one, Paul is going to use his, uh, himself as an example. Then, number two, he's going to use Elijah as an example. And then number three, he's going to use grace as an example. God's grace. So you've got Paul, Elijah and God's grace. And these are the three examples we're going to see in these first six verses that are showing us and telling us very clearly this remnant reminds us that God keeps his promises. So look at verse one with me. Again, you start with the question, has God rejected his people? By no means. And then Paul says, so I'm exhibit A. This is what he's doing. He doesn't often say, look at me, but here he does. And he's an unlikely one, right? Paul's the unlikely one. He was the one that was going against Christians. He was the one that was cheering on their deaths. He was the one that was supporting Stephen being killed for his faith in Christ. He was the one that was on his way to Damascus to arrest Christians and throw them in jail. So he's like the arch enemy of the church at this point in his life before he's a Christian. And then he says, but look everybody, if you think that God has rejected his people, don't think that any longer. Just look at my example of my life. I got saved by Jesus. Here's Paul that got saved very dramatically by Jesus on the road to Damascus. 
He wasn't looking for Jesus, okay? He was looking for Christians to throw him in jail. Jesus was looking for him. Jesus had him, you know, in the crosshairs, and he's like, you are my chosen instrument, and you are going to proclaim my name to the Gentiles. So Paul's like, hey, just look at me. So in verse 1, he says, I myself am an Israelite. So Paul wasn't teaching his own rejection. He says, I'm a a descendant of Abraham. I'm a member of the tribe of Benjamin. He's saying, I am really a Jew. I was an enemy. Now I'm a friend of Christ. So in verse 2, he says, uh, God has not rejected. He has not cast off his people whom he foreknew. People here refers to Israel. But but we've already seen this in chapter 9. Not all those who are part of Israel are part of the remnant or part of the elect, the true people of God. So you cannot conclude that there'll come a day that, oh, every Israelite throughout history is getting saved. That would be like God having two salvation plans. He's got one salvation plan. He saves by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So the people here refers to Israel, but not all those who are part of Israel are part of the remnant. But you think about all the promises that were made to the Jews. God's chosen people. Psalm 94, 14. You can cling to that one. The Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. He will not do it. So that's why some people say, well, the rejection of the Jews is inconsistent with the word of God. You might think that yourself. And what Paul is doing in chapter 11 is he eliminates your misunderstanding. He shows the rejection of the Jews was not total or final. Because also in the Old Testament, you see how many times that God told his people, you reject me, you don't listen to me, you don't obey me, you're getting rejected. In 2 Kings 17, 20, the Lord rejected all the descendants of Israel and afflicted them and gave them into the hands of plunderers and cast them out of his sight. In 2 Kings 21, 14, he says, I will abandon the remnant of my inheritance. I'm going to deliver them over to their enemies. It's because they were disobedient and they were unfaithful to God. Here's God making unilateral covenant promises and Israel not able to keep covenant. No sinful human can keep covenant with God. This is why God makes a unilateral covenant, a one-sided covenant. In Psalm 43, verse 2, the psalmist cries out, You are the God of my strength. Why have you rejected us? Why do we go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? In Psalm 44, 23, arouse yourself. Why do you sleep, O Lord? Awake, do not reject us forever. So it's very clear in the Old Testament that Disobedient Jews are going to be rejected by God, but it's for a time. And what most think is that in verse 2 here, where it says God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew, that he was referring to 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 22, which says this, The Lord will not abandon his people on account of his great name, because the Lord has been pleased to make you a people for himself. Now, the Old Testament context is very important here. The context of 1 Samuel is very important. Here's the context. They had abandoned God's rule. They said, God, we don't want you to rule over us. We want you to give us a king like all the other nations have. This is like your kids going, but everybody in that family gets to do this. And you remind them, but you're in our family, right? You can go live with them if you want, but you got to deal with other things, right? Old Old Testament context, very important here. They're abandoning God's rule. They're asking for a king to rule over them. They they don't want God to rule over them. They said, we want to be like all the other nations. 
And what 1 Samuel 12 is doing is recounting Israel's sins, recounting Israel's unfaithfulness to God. And Samuel is assuring them, God is not going to forsake you, even though you are so sinful and against him. Now you, you put it into the first century context, and here's Israel sinning by rejecting the apostolic preaching of the gospel that Jesus is the Messiah and, and we hear in, in Romans 11 God has not forsaken his people even though he, they have forsaken him. So Paul says to those who think the Jews are completely rejected look at me. Everybody look at me. I'm saved. God chose me. God knew me from before the foundation of the world. So that's exhibit A, Paul himself, an unlikely candidate. He wouldn't have been, you know, top of his class. You know, he wouldn't have had a, what, a five point, what, they got a 5.0 now or a 6.0? Oh, we get in high school now, yeah, yeah. It's coming soon, I'm sure. The 6.0 is coming soon. It used to be the 4.0, now it's the 5.0, 6.0. Paul would never have been at the top of his class. But what we see through Paul is God has not rejected his people. He chose Paul to be a part of the people of God. And I just want to pause for a moment and think about this, what this tells us, what this drives us to. Here's God choosing a very unlikely suspect who is exhibit A on the fact that he has not rejected his people. That tells me we need to go after the unlikely suspects. Those that seem so far away from Christ. Those that seem so against Christ. Again, if you're Christian and you're a Jew, if you're a Jewish Christian, praise God. That's reason to rejoice. But it's very easy for us to look at people and go, oh, they're just, no, they're just, they're too far away. I, I don't even know where to start with them. And I believe this calls for very humble and bold evangelism on our part. And we talk about evangelism a lot, I know. But the idea is this, that we shouldn't write anyone off. We shouldn't have an exclusion on our list of that person isn't going to hear the gospel from me that we need to tell everyone the gospel. This was Paul's mindset. This was Paul's way of thinking, and he knew it from experience. He was the one that no one wanted to talk to. Just remember that when Paul became a believer, the church did not believe he was saved. They're like, you're, you're trying to trick us. They, they, he had to have Barnabas come up and give his testimony so the church would even accept him. And this is the guy that was preaching Christ immediately after getting saved. So I think what we need to do, you know, is just like Paul, pray like Paul, knowing that only God can change a heart. Because Romans 10.1, he said this, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is that they would be saved. So you need to be praying for, for unbelievers to get saved. I hope you're doing that. And I think most Christians do, okay? Most Christians do. But I know we talk about evangelism a lot, but I want to give you some practical help. So we're going to pause right here, and I'm just going to give you some practical help as you seek to boldly and, and humbly share the gospel with unlikely subjects, okay? First of all, go beyond praying. Okay, there was a study done that 56% that of the Christians uh, that were you know, in this study said, well, every week, at least once a week, I pray for people who are lost. And then it took a nosedive when they asked the question, well, how many of you have shared the gospel with anyone in the last six months? So you're praying every week that someone gets saved and nobody's sharing the gospel. There's a problem. Now, if I was opening up my Bible and I saw that God said, all you need to do is pray and I'll take it from there, we'd be good, right? 
That's not what God said. Why are we sending missionaries out if that was what God said? We're sending missionaries out because God said, take the gospel and preach it to everyone. So God's chosen means is the gospel carried by real life people. Real life people that are praying for people to get saved and go beyond praying and proclaim the gospel. Now look, you might say, well, you're trying to get me to do something I don't want to do. I would pause and say, well, hold on a minute. Do you love Jesus? You talk about who you love. I'm not trying to get you to do something you don't want to do. If you're a Christian, you want to talk about Jesus. You love Jesus. You want to talk about him. Go beyond praying. Don't withhold or neglect the God-chosen means to gather the elect. Speak of Christ. Hope that they will listen. Put yourself on the line. Be like the subway singer who just goes out there and starts singing when no one's expecting them to start singing. Just pour out your heart. Number two, I'm going to give you like seven of them here, so you might want to write. Number two, get others praying for you. Did you notice that's what Paul did? He would say it all the time. Here's Colossians 4, uh, verses 2 through 4. Continue steadfastly in prayer. Be watchful in it with thanksgiving. And pray for us also, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, that I may make it clear as I ought to speak. Have your family and your home group, your small group, Have friends praying for you that you would actually get open doors for the word of God and that you would be bold and that you would be clear about it. You need to have people praying for you. Go beyond praying to proclaiming, but have people praying for you. Number three, weave your testimony in. Weave in what God did in your life. This is what Paul did. Acts 26, verses 4 through 11, his life before Christ. Verses 12 through 18, his life when he came to Christ. And verses 19 to 23, the life changed since meeting Christ. Tell them what happened, what your life was like before, how you got saved, and how Jesus has changed your life. Weave your testimony in. Number four, have scripture ready. Now, why would you want to have some Bible verses ready? Because the word of God is powerful, and the gospel transforms. God's word transforms. Have some scriptures ready. Number five, be courageous. Most people are like, I'm too afraid to do that. You know, most of us are not going to the subway because we don't have them here. But you go to New York, I'm going to go to New York and sing in the subway, you know. Uh, We're not doing that because we don't want to, like, put ourselves on the line like that. But I would ask this question. What exactly are you afraid of? What exactly are you afraid of? Again, I'm not trying to get you to do what you don't want to do. If you love Jesus, you're going to speak of him. We talk about who or what we love. Jesus himself said, the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. Your love for Jesus is going to overflow, and you're going to want to tell people, and you're going to get kind of annoying to them at times. I got a friend, I got a Jewish friend, who introduced me to his wife this way. This is Mike, the guy who's always trying to convert me. Now, I'm his friend, so it's not everything I'm always telling him, but that's in his mind. Number six, follow up. So pray and proclaim the gospel to people and repeat. It's like lather, rinse, repeat. Well, pray and preach to people and repeat it. Keep doing it. This is an urgent task. You cannot say, well, I did it once. You just can't go there. You know why gospel preaching is such an urgent task? Because of Romans chapter 1, verse 18, which tells us that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men 
who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Do you know someone who's suppressing the truth? Pray and proclaim the gospel to them. Don't think they're just too far gone. Think Paul. When you start thinking those things, perish that thought and think of Paul. And then the last thing I'll just say, number seven, is remember sovereignty. Remember God's sovereignty. Get a grip on God's sovereignty's place in salvation. Only God knows who he will save. And their rejection is not of you, it's of Christ. And their rejection may not be the end of the story for them. Don't write them off after one or two tries. God is more patient than us. God is more merciful than us. God is more gracious than us. Just remember, if they're still breathing, then the story might not be over with them yet. Don't write anybody off. God has not rejected his people upon whom he has set his covenant love and favor. And you have no idea who they are, Jew and Gentile alike. You just have no idea. You see a mass of humanity all around you, some of which you dislike greatly and some of which you really like. And they all need the gospel. So Paul, a Jew, put his faith in Jesus the Messiah. And it proves to us that God has not passed Israel by. Again, if he was the only example, if Paul was the only example, that would prove to us that God has not passed his people by. But Paul is not the only proof. We next have an illustration, and he uses Elijah to illustrate this. So he's, he's taking this from 1 Kings chapter 19. And he's basically saying, Paul's saying, I'm not the only one, by the way. There are more than you think. There's a lot more than you think. So here's what verse 2 tells us. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel. Verse 3, Lord, they've killed your prophets. He's quoting from 1 Kings 19. They have killed your prophets. They've demolished your altars. I alone am left, and they seek my life. So here's what happened in Elijah. You probably know the story, but 1 Kings 18, he's got this huge victory on Mount Carmel uh, over the prophets of Baal, and and God uh, brought it about on a mountain in front of a lot of people. But then in chapter 19, he's meeting Elijah under a tree in the desert and in a cave. And here's what happened. After Mount Carmel, Ahab goes home and tells his wife Jezebel, a bad name, no one's called that. So you know Jezebel's a bad character. Bad actor. Jezebel is a raving lunatic mad at this. And her uh, message to Elijah is, you've got 24 hours, then you'll be dead. He runs. I, I don't, we don't get it, but I guess we do. He runs, and he runs south. And he leaves his servant at Beersheba, and he goes a, a day into the desert alone. And he gets under a juniper tree and he falls down into the tree and he's just spent. And he asks God, he says, just let me die. Please let me die. There's a foolish prayer to a compassionate, gracious God. We've we've all probably prayed a lot of foolish prayers to a gracious God. His prayer is self-pity. He's complaining. And I love what God does. God corrects him compassionately. That's what God does with his children. So he renews him by an angel, he gives him food, he revives him, he, he appears, he, he shows his great strength uh, through wind so mighty that it shatters rocks, through an earthquake, uh, through fire, through a gentle wind, and then God speaks. Look at verse four. Look at verse four. But what is God's reply to him? What does God say to him? 
That phrase, God's reply, that literally means the divine reply. It's the only time used in the New Testament. It means it's an authoritative response. What's God's authoritative response to Elijah? To this complaint. Here's what he says. I have kept or reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Like, hey buddy, you're not the only one. These are are chosen by grace. He says, "I, I have reserved them for myself. This is God's electing grace. And they didn't you know, get reserved because they were good. Like, well, let's pick out all the people that didn't bow their knee to Baal. They didn't bow their knee to Baal because they were chosen by God. We're talking about God's covenant here, securing his people for his name. The Lord has been pleased to make you a people for himself, as 1 Samuel 12, tells us. So it is impossible, it's actually unthinkable for God to reject his people on whom he has set his covenant love. His promise still stands. His promise will never break. And so verse 5 is pretty much the point. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Now Elijah is illustrating this principle that God has reserved for himself a remnant. 7,000 that didn't do idol worship because God preserved them for himself. This is awesome news. Now likewise, God has not abandoned Israel Many who have rejected him and the gospel because he has a remnant of believing Jews that he has uh, reserved for himself by electing grace. He did it. He didn't say, let's all the good ones we're going to put over here, they'll be the remnant. No, no, no. These are all chosen by grace. So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. So if you're the unlikely suspect, by the way, and you're a believer now, You're like, praise God, I was chosen by grace. I wasn't chosen by my track record. Praise God. There's a remnant, a scrappy little group. It tells us us something we're going to look at next week. That means the majority of the Israelites were apostate. There's just a small group. There's a scrap. But it tells us that God has not rejected his people. Their presence is because of God, and it's to give us hope. This is Paul's point, just like in Elijah's time. He continues to preserve a remnant of Israelites in the first century too. You got Paul and other believers. Paul wasn't the only believer in the first century. He pointed to himself, but he's like, but there's a remnant. Now, this is cool. At the end of Romans, in chapter 16, just maybe leaf over there. What you see in Romans 16 is pretty cool. It's a, bunch, it's, a, it's a bunch of names. Now, it's easy to go, oh, come on, it's the ending greetings. Why do you have to name check all his friends, right? But their, their names are very significant. And, and I'm just going to read you six of them. We'll look at verse 7 and 11 and 21. He is pointing out Andronicus, Junia, Herodian, Lucius, Jason, Sosipater, and he calls them compatriots. You know what that means? They're fellow Jews. Do you know how encouraging that would have been to Paul to have these fellow Jews right around him, knowing, uh, being reminded that God has not cast off his people whom he chose, that God's gracious choice of Paul and other believing Jews is proof that Jesus saves and a remnant exists. This is encouraging. 
we need to think about this. A lot of believers will say, but I'm the only one in my office that's a Christian. I'm the only one on my block that's a Christian. I'm the only one on my sports team that's a Christian. I'm the only one in my school that's a Christian. And, and isn't it awesome when you meet a fellow Christian and you're like, I'm not the only one? Sometimes you're like, but I am the only one. I, I, I remember when we moved on to our block here in Orange, I'm like, I'm the only Christian on my block. They were coming out of the woodwork, I'm telling you. I'm not even the only pastor on my block. And he's a believer. He's a friend of mine. Martyr complex is easy to latch on to. You just got to know you're not alone. There was a story of a, a 55-year-old woman who threw, him, who threw herself uh, from her 14th floor apartment to her death. Right before she jumped, she saw a window cleaner and said hello to him, and as soon as he turns away, she jumps. And they find a note in her apartment that says this, I can't endure one more day of this loneliness. My phone never rings. I never get letters. I don't have any friends. And there's a lady that lives right across the hall from her, and the reporters are asking her, so what'd you know about her? And she goes, I just wish I would have known she was so lonely. I'm really lonely too. I just think what we need to do when we think about the remnant is let the presence of the remnant, however small, encourage us in Christ. Uh, The remnant is gathered and generated by Almighty God. They exist because God chose them by grace. Every time, I know, every time I hear even the the idea that God has his remnant, my heart's encouraged. I I want yours to be as well. You know, no matter how bad things might look or bad things might get in your situation, we live in a time when truth is called a lie. And you might think, I'm the only one. Just remember, God always has his remnant, and you're not alone. He's going to probably surprise you by orchestrating you meeting up with another believer, and then you could be praying together the salvation of the lost. There's a present remnant chosen by grace. And then there's a kind of a summary statement in verse six. Look at that. And it just says this, salvation's all of grace. That's it. Salvation's all of grace. Multiplied grace, okay? Um, So here's the thing. Verse six, it says, but if it is by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace would no longer be grace. It tells us something we just have to keep reminding ourselves over and over about that you can't do this Christian life on your own. You can't save yourself, nor can you keep yourself a Christian alone. Only Jesus saves, and what you should expect is multiplied grace. John 1 talks about how Jesus, uh, in, in Christ, there is grace upon grace, more and more grace all the time. Romans, look over in Romans 5, and Romans 5 tells us, verse 15, The free gift is not like the trespass. If many died through one man's trespass, much more the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man abounded for many. The word abound is multiply. Okay, It's overflowing grace. Uh, Let your eyes drop down to verse 20. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And the idea is that grace is overflowing. The riches of his grace towards us in Christ Jesus. And the idea is that we, we should expect multiplied grace when we're in Christ and that more and more people will get saved. And it will be by God's choice unconnected to their works. So the present remnant owes its existence to God's free grace. And remember, God's kinder than we are. God's more merciful than we are. God's more gracious than we are. 
aren't you glad? And I want to remember something. You need to remember this. God did not owe you the gospel. We're so entitled. Think we're entitled. We deserved hell, not heaven. We are saved by the sheer grace of God. And if you say, well, I wasn't that bad, you don't understand sin. There are a lot of things we cannot do in life. We can't run a two-minute mile. We can't walk on the walls, you know, vertical. Uh, we can't teach a goldfish how, goldfish how to play the trumpet or something, right? You, you can't do these things. Uh, you, you can't be in two places at one time. You, you can't turn back time. You can't even defy gravity uh, very long. Some of us degra- can't defy it at all. But here's the biggest thing that you can never do. You can never save your soul by your works. It's, it's, you're saved by a gracious choice of God. It's free and unconditional. And, and so anyone who's saved, again, says, Jesus saved me. Anyone who's lost has to say, that they rejected Christ. We should expect multiplied grace, though. We can't do it on our own. We can't become a Christian on our own. We can't stay one on our own. We can't, we can't share the gospel and have, see people get saved on our own. The gospel uh, and the grace of God is spreading to more and more people as God opens hearts to the gospel. The gospel is a story of overflowing grace. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Again, abound means to increase. 2 Corinthians 4.15 says, For it is for your sake that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. More and more people praising God, more and more people worshiping the Lord. And what Romans 11 tells us really is that Jew and Gentile alike are very important to God's salvation plan and to the mission of Christ's church. Both are needed as we proclaim the manifold grace and wisdom of of God in Christ. So don't think of the Jews in the wrong way. Don't think of them as a barrier or a brick wall. Uh, Don't think of them that way. Think of them as a pathway. Uh, Don't think of them as a dead-end street. Uh, Think of them as forerunners. From them came the Messiah. And God's going to keep every promise he made. And I know how things go, and I've probably been guilty of thinking of Romans 11 this way too, that Romans 11 is just this tutorial uh, about the Jews and their present condition and their future hope. And in many ways it is, but it's a lot more personal than that. It's like kind of washing your face. It wakes you up to your responsibility of the day. You just go, you know. Uh, I will confess to you, I do not think enough about the Jewish people. I do not pray enough about the Jewish people. I am aware of the theological ramifications, but practically, I don't have a lot of interaction with a lot of Jewish people, and I don't think a lot about their situation. I've got a couple of Jewish friends, and I interact with them. But I don't like pray for or attempt to reach Jews on purpose. And you might see that in your life, too. I would just say something needs to change, probably. The world is filled with Jews and Gentiles. There's a remnant of Israel that exists right now as a reminder of a future promise. It's, maybe it looks like a sliver of hope, but it is a huge, huge hope to hold on to because it doesn't disappoint. Hope in Christ does not disappoint. It's built on the faithful word of God. So Romans 11. I think there's something else about this chapter that we really need to, to, to understand. It's not just about some tutorial about the Jews. This is for God to humble us with. We, we sh- our hearts should be humbled by reading this because we should never take grace for granted. We, we should never think it is our right. 
We want to be a humble church under God's overflowing grace. We want to see uh, gospel ministry flourish and grace overflowing to the unlikely, even those we dislike, even those we think are unlikely subjects. See, Christ is in the midst of growing his church in humble unity and in fervent evangelism, expectant evangelism. Uh, A remnant reminds it's like survivors. They remind you that not all was lost and that they actually did something. It's like Memorial Day. We are remembering those who died for our freedom as Americans. We take it for granted. We should never take for granted our freedom that was bought by the blood of those protecting America. That should remind us because now we're thinking about the kingdom of God and the remnant. A, a memorial to cause us to remember and not forget God is faithful to his word. And it goes beyond every boundary, every culture that reminds us God keeps his promises. It reminds us you, you should evangelize in, in a humble, bold way. It reminds us that you need to remember you're not alone. It reminds us that we should be expecting lots of people to get saved as grace overflows. The remnant reminds us. Here's how, we, here's, here's how we should walk out these doors today. We should be grateful for the grace of God. Very grateful for the grace of God. While, while resolving to humbly evangelize. And, and to, the only way to get there is to let God break you by his grace that overflows. Be captured by his grace. Be gospel saved and captured by grace. Uh, let me close with a little story about a, a World War II survivor, uh, Louis Zamperini. He was an Olympic runner as well. Uh, his life after the war was very rough. He had violent nightmares. He uh, was addicted to alcohol. He, he took a very reluctant uh, trip to the 1949 Billy Graham crusade in Los Angeles. And he heard the gospel and he got saved. He, he was actually enabled by God to forgive his, his Japanese torturers. And they wrote a, you know, they did a movie about, there's a couple movies about him, but one of them was called Unbroken. And I know it's easy to go, wow, yeah, he was never broken. Man, he was strong. Well, that was the case even when he wasn't a believer. But what happened when he became a believer is he experienced the Holy Spirit's power to change a life. So there was a time in his life that he was an unbroken man. Uh, when he was growing up in the 1920s, he got picked on by, by uh, bullies in high school. That didn't break him. Okay, he was strong. Uh, they, he had injustice from runners that he ran against. That didn't break him. He was strong. He was homesick during his military service. Uh, it couldn't break him. He was strong. He's not a believer at this point. His bomber crashes into the Pacific on, on May 27, 1943. Kills eight people of the 11 that were on board. It's just him and two other guys left. It didn't break him. He was on a raft for 47 days in the ocean. Could, didn't break him. He's not a believer at this point. He's just strong. Sharks are attacking him in the water. Didn't break him. He had to bury fellow soldiers at sea. Didn't break him. His, his, his Japanese captors that tortured him for two and a half years. Didn't break him. You know what broke him? The gospel. In September of 1949, he was broken by the gospel. 
He was captured by God's grace. He was brought to the end of himself. And so he knew he couldn't do it on his own. And he dedicated the rest of his life, the rest of his life to getting the gospel out. That's how we should be. We should be so grateful for grace as we go out these doors today that we would just say, I'm going to humbly evangelize and disciple and, and help, help, help unbelievers get to know Christ and believers get to know, grow in Christ. That's what we should be doing. That's really what we should be doing. Well, let's pray together, okay? Lord, I, I pray that as a result of us hearing your word and worshiping you together, that we, we'd be reminded once again that we need to rest in Christ. We need to rest in you and, and, and walk through the open doors that you put out for the word. And I pray, Lord, that unbelievers would be saved. I pray that believers would, would grow in, in, in Christ, all for your glory. And we pray in Christ's name, amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Grace, please visit our website at graceorange.org.